Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, especially in October. I am one of your hosts, Miss Melmore. I am the other host, Mr. Craigers. Yes, he is. And tonight, in honor of it being prime spooky season, we're about almost smack dab in the middle of October recording this, and being the 125th anniversary of this piece, we are going to be discussing the iconic legendary influential bram stoker's dracula the book not the movie i realize as i said that that could be misconstrued the movie it will has, be mentioned as francis <laughs> coppola's bram stoker's dracula <laughs> this is just og dracula i was holding up the book as if anyone could see me do that the copy of dracula that we all had to get for school i have the, you know, the classic song yes <laughs> Um, but yes, it is the 125th anniversary of the publication of Dracula. I learned this because a group in Philadelphia, whose name I forget, I want to say it was not the Free Public Library, but it was somebody else, mm. some sort of historical society, um, was doing last week, last Thursday, I think, a, um, and I think it was potentially Thursday or Friday, whatever it was, because it was the exact like anniversary date, I'm not sure. But they were doing a readathon where from dusk until dawn they read through all oh, of Dracula. Um and it was, you know, you paid you you could pay like five bucks if you got there, like at a certain time, and then afterwards it was free for like night owls and that sort of thing. Um and I thought about going, but then I was like, I knew myself. <laughs> but the concept sounded very cool. That is cool. So yeah, uh, so we're gonna get into all about Dracula. Yeah, but first, are. I think we got some horror headlines and some horror sort of pre-headlines, because what are we doing this weekend? Yeah, so as of this recording, it is the Tuesday before um, the Exhumed Films' 24-hour horror-thon at the Colonial Theater in Philadelphia. Phoenixville. Uh, in Phoenixville, which is... Near Philadelphia. Yes. <laughs> um, and if you don't know what that is, um, it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it's a 24-hour horror movie marathon um, put on and sponsored by Exhumed Films. They've been hosting it at the Colonial Theater for a couple years, but it wasn't always there, correct? Right. It. Um, I don't know. If I, last year might have been the first year that it was actually at the Colonial but it previously, I think, was just held because they have their own space that they do out in Lehighton that I think is potentially an outdoor like screening space that they do stuff with. So last year, potentially the year before, but I know last year they was they hosted it at the Colonial. They're doing it again this year. So it seems like it's going to be a um, a regular venue for them. Well, that's really cool. Um, yeah, really exciting. You did it last year. Mm -hmm. um and kind of like ever since then i was like yes i'm in this must happen it's um, funny because i it's not that i forgot about it but just you were like okay like in august and you're like and yeah and that film festival that we're going to yeah. <laughs> i was like oh right <laughs> yep i have been on it um it's staying up for 24 hours and watching movies is something that's on my like actual like written out bucket list 
And I was just saying to Ms. Mel before we started recording that that is the goal for this weekend. Um, but, you know, I also need to be conscious and accepting of the fact <laughs> that, like, I'm not I'm a college years kid old. anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm 32 <laughs> years old. And as much as I would like and will try to stay up for 24 hours, um, you know, there it might there might be some some tweaks in there to well, I think of it like <laughs> like when people do the Appalachian Trail and some people don't do what they call through hiking, where sometimes you do it in spurts and fill the rest in later, you know? Yeah. And look, they call it a, a, a thon, right? It's a horror thon, a marathon, and mm-hmm. it's not a sprint. So no. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, but it sounds really cool. It's the largest horror movie event on the East Coast, which I think is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that this year there's 15 films scheduled throughout the 24-hour period. Um, there's a cool prize, apparently, we've been promised if we're there at the end. It's a mystery, as is the lineup. Yes, that is one of the deals is you find out as you watch. <laughs> In the program, there will be hints and, you know, some of them you can maybe kind of guess, but for the most part, um, it's fun, like, as the title screens come up and people realize what they are and sort of like, oh, yeah, so. That's pretty cool. I'm excited for that atmosphere. I picked out what I'm going to wear, going for obviously spooky, but comfort as well. Yes. I picked Uh, out my my top. I need to figure out what I'm going to do for my bottoms because... I know in my heart it's going to be sweatpants. Yeah. I just well, got to figure out which ones. We encourage that on their website. They're like, come comfy, like bring pillows, bring blankets if you want. Um, oh, you should bring your Halloween blanket. I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think we're going to have a really nice time. Um, it'll be a fun way to spend like peak spooky season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last year when we went, I think because last year it was sort of a late addition, they ended up doing it the weekend after Halloween, which was oh, kind of a bummer. I mean, it was fine, but it's like, you know, like, so like, it's like kind of like the week after Christmas where you're like depressed. Yeah. So I'm happy this year that it, it's right in, right in it. It's right in prime time. So. Yeah, and as as you all know, I've been to a few events of the Colonial. I've never been to Blobfest, mainly because I heard about it every single summer since I was a kid and did not give a shit about it. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, I would eventually like to go, but um, basically they screen the blob and then everyone runs out of the theater like they do in the movie. And then I don't know if you do that at the end or you do it when it happens and you come back and finish watching. I'm unclear about the protocol. But I know that they shut down the street so nobody gets hit by a car. Good. Smart. Um, it seems like it would be so chaotic to do it when it happens in, like, when it happens in the movie. But, like, that You have to, like, wrangle like, everybody and be like, all right, everyone be back by 2 o'clock. Because we got to rescan your tickets or whatever like that. <laughs> no, I think they do it at the end. But I've never I've never done it. And that always sells out. But um, I have done... I've been to... They did a really cool showing of Blair Witch um, with an interview with the guy who basically wrote the sort of like oral history Ooh. of the Blair Witch. Um, they showed Friday the 13th Part 2 with a cast member who was a hoot. She was like the number one person who like had comments throughout the entire film. Like something would happen. And she'd be like, why did he do that? 
Wasn't that dumb? Stupid. <laughs> um, but yeah, they do a lot of fun <laughs> stuff there. Was that also where you saw um, Nosferatu with the accompaniment? No, that was actually no. at the Mütter Museum. Okay. I did see Phantom of the Opera there, though, with an organ accompaniment. And they're actually showing October 30th Nosferatu with that same organ at the Colonial. So in theory, you could do it. I have not, but you could. Somewhere here, I'm just escaping me now, but somewhere in DC, it might even be connected to the Smithsonian. They're doing like one of those. They're um, doing Cabinet of Dr. Caligari with like a live organ. Ooh. Yeah. That's pretty fun. Yeah. I don't think I can go. And trippy. It might be this weekend, and maybe that's why I'm not like super up on the details because it's like, oh, well, I'll be at the horathon. But well, we could see Cabinet of Dr. Caligari because I don't see it on this list. Ah. Oh, yes. And that's the other thing about the Horathon Shatter is they never repeat the movies um, that they show year to year. And this is the 15th year, right? That's what we said. Yes. Yeah. 15th uh, year for this Thon, 25th year for exhumed films, yeah. I think. Yeah. So it's a big anniversary year all around. They've shown 200 films exactly over the past four years. And so it'll be 15 brand new films this weekend, which is pretty cool. Well, brand new films to be screened, not brand new films in general. Place <laughs> <laughs> your bets on what you think um, will be there. They show, I think, part of... I'm not sure if this is true of exhumed films. I'm guessing it is that to be shown, it has to exist in 35 millimeter because I think that's what that theater that it's because there's other theaters in the colonial that do projection and modern style of of films and that sort of thing. But this theater, um, the original theater that it's set in um, only shows, I believe, um, eight or 35 millimeter um, film. So. That's yeah. also a thing to keep in mind. That's really cool. Um, so everything we see this weekend will be in 35 millimeter. I believe so. That's at the cool. very least, it will be it's it's not gonna be digital, which I think is part of why they don't show a ton of um super recent films unless those super recent films exist in in a 35 film. millimeter. Because right? yeah. when I saw Blair Witch. I forget what it was, but they showed it on film and it was one of the few remaining tapes of Blair Witch, mm. which they explained to us was because um, they got like played into like oblivion because everyone was playing Blair Witch so much. It was such a hit that it like destroyed the tapes. Sure, I believe um, it. So, yeah. That's really cool, though. Yeah. So we're excited. We um, are excited. Before we get into the big thing that we both watched recently that I think is going to take the bulk, um, I will just throw out, first of all, did you watch The New Orphan? Yes. Um, and I realized we, because we, we skipped horror headlines. Yes, last for month. Colleen, yeah. Yeah, so there's kind of like two months of things to talk about, which we obviously don't have the time to go into everything. Um, but yeah, in terms of like quick highlights, yes, Orphan First Kill. Bonkers. Wild. <laughs> <laughs> I was very impressed that they were able to get everyone a second time because like you're going in thinking like, oh yeah, I know, like, I don't know how you're going to really like, you know, what's the deal with this? And then all of a sudden halfway through the movie, I was like, oh my God. 
turn it took was so wild um and so funny like <laughs> but I, like that movie knew exactly what it was doing it like knew that the idea of an orphan prequel was inherently silly and mm -hmm. so just like you know what here yeah no that was wild mm -hmm. i enjoyed it isabel Furman is just such a apparently like it was her whole she was like can i do this like can i can we make another one like she went to them to be like can we make another one and they like incidentally had been working on like an idea yeah she reached out to them yeah and i saw her do an interview afterwards where she was like i'll do a third one i'll do a fourth one like <laughs> i'm fucking crazy i'll do i'll do them all <laughs> do them all um and honestly i'd kind of like i i would welcome just sort Based of like on that, I'm like crazy. Yeah. Like I feel like it could end up being like an evil dead situation where it just gets more yes. and more ridiculous. Yes. I'd be like, let's do it. I'm, I'm on board because at first I was like, I, I, what the hell is this going to achieve? Like who asked for this? And then I watched it. I had an actual. Turns out all of us. Yeah. So. Turns out we all asked for it. Um, um, yes, I meant to bring that up because I knew we didn't get a chance to talk about it last time. And I was like, yeah. I have to remember to ask him if he watched Orphan First Kill. Uh, speaking of, of movies that took wild turns, um, did you see Barbarian? I did not yet. And I'm really <laughs> mad. And it partially is because I had a whole plan. Maybe I'll see it this week. I don't know. My week, I have to get a haircut. And that like just kind of threw my whole week off. Um. But I have been staying away. I know it takes a wild turn, but I have no idea what happens in it. I see people mention it on Twitter and I like run away because I want to just experience this purely. So eventually I will. I know it's gonna go on HBO Max at some point. So if I don't get my butt to the theater by then. Yeah. And I would imagine probably relatively soon because mm -hmm. the theatrical window is so short these days. Um, but yeah, 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 it's, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm obviously not going to give anything away. That is the best way to go into it. But yeah, <laughs> I just was not expecting that movie to be what it became. Yes. And I had a friend who saw it and was like, I forget, I forget exactly what she said, but she was like, my suggestion for you is to see it with a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I saw it alone, and I was de I definitely was like sort of like still like looking around the theater, like what the fuck? We all just see that. Yeah. Um, oh, it looks like it's coming to streaming October twenty fifth. So ah, right. I will take care of that next week. Too bad it's not like Friday, and you could watch me watch it. But um, man, just a couple of like. Yeah, it's like Tuesday or something next week. So I will next week by the time next time we record, I will have seen it and we'll have thoughts for everyone. There we go. There we um, go. Yeah, I um, what did I see? I today watched um, the Spirit Halloween movie. Oh, that's available. Mm -hmm. Totally missed that. Amazon Prime, amongst other places. It's fine. I mean, it's definitely like it's the kind of. It's like for younger audiences, not younger, younger audiences, but it's definitely like, I was thinking about it, watching it like, oh, like, I think my 10 year old niece could probably, could probably okay. watch this. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's gateway horror. 
basically because it's not there's no gore in it i don't think there's really much cursing at all um it's just basically um these three friends who like one of them still really wants to sort of go he like can't let go of trick-or-treating um the other two are like oh we're kind of too old for that um you know they kind of right. get into a argument about that at the beginning of the film and they find they decide like a happy medium is they're gonna do some sort of activity because the one kind of wanted to go to like a high school party and the others are like no so their happy medium is sneaking into a spirit halloween waiting until it closes and then spending all night just hanging out in there and watching movies and stuff which you feel mm -hmm. um but there's some sort of spooky spooky things that happen nice that sounds yeah. fun thank you yeah no it was fun like don't go in expecting like a horror movie i would say it's like more on par with hocus pocus speaking of have you seen hocus pocus 2 i have i have as well I felt it was phoned in. Yeah, I am. Um... Which is unfortunate because you could tell that Bette Midler and Kathy and Jimmy and Sarah Jessica Parker were really into it. And it felt like the rest of it was just not, not really at the same level. I got tired of the wink, wink, nudge, nudge pretty early. Yeah. Um, yeah. And no shade, but the kids were not as endearing as the original cast. They weren't, and I totally thought for a second the two were going to end up being like secret girlfriends, and they weren't, and I was upset. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is nonsense, because in the book version of Hocus Pocus 2, which honestly at this point I think is better than that movie, um, that was a plot Which is point. interesting, because like when you first read the book version, you were like, it's not great. Than, than what they did but in that it's also three female friends and two of them sort of have like crushes on each other and that's sort of like a b plot oh yeah but so they yeah sort of like almost take that they almost take it and then they run away from it yeah um well, yeah, I, did, I did kind of enjoy tony hale being tony hale's and as soon as i saw him i was like please let tony hale be the villain but no, he was just an idiot the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> his like weird obsession with the caramel apple, like he's like you have to try the caramel apple. I was just like every time we cut back to that, I did smile. <laughs> no, I enjoyed Tony Hill, um, and the other guy from Veep, um, I forget his name, who is the owner of the the museum now. Oh, Sam Richardson. Sam Richardson. Yeah. I just remember, like, my favorite thing from him and Veep is when uh, they go to a town where a dog is a mayor and the security <laughs> guard, like, doesn't get it and she sees a cat run by and she's, like, a stray cat and she's like, well, is that a mayor? And he's oh, like, no, it's a cat. But, um, yeah, I didn't... He is very, he is very lovely. Um, I worry for him because everything I see him in, he's basically playing the same character. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe he'll just be a character actor and that's fine because he's very good at it but like I don't know I was kind of watching him in Hocus Pocus too and I was just like what if you did something else though yeah yeah um what else did I watch told you about oh did you watch Speak No Evil I did watch Speak No Evil that, that movie was legit that movie was very good um and very dark yes 
Now, and I am of the camp because I know a lot of people got to the end without giving anything away, but said that the end was just kind of they had to stop watching, which I get. It's a very intense guess, ending. That is very intense. But I think it's earned. Oh, you know, I definitely like, think it's earned. It's not like I think that was the debate as people were saying it's intense for intensity's sake, but I was like, no, because the whole movie is sort of like an escalating tension. And then, yeah. you know, there's only one way it can really end. Yeah. It's like a reverse funny games, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um I would it reminds me of something we read in um our short fiction class, but I fear saying too much about what that was because it would kind of give away the plot. But it was <laughs> um, Comfort of Strangers. Okay. If you look up the plot to that, it's very similar. Yeah, it was very well done. Um, and I quite enjoyed it. But yeah, it was definitely like, oh my, I feel a little grimy after this. Yeah. Um, but in like a good way, like I don't know. No, I thought it was excellent. Me. Normally, after stuff like that, like I need like a serious cool down period where I throw on like Bob's Burgers or something. But after that, I was just I was like, no, that was just a really well done, like designed to keep you as tense as possible for ninety minutes movie where like nothing truly scary happens until the end, basically. Um. Yeah, but you're tense the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, because it's well-crafted. The score really unsettled me. It, it reminded me of Dark, the way something would happen, like something mundane, like people would be like brushing their teeth and then all of a sudden you hear like, Bong, and you're like, what? But um, yeah, that yeah, was, no, it was great. Um, speaking of very unsettling, um, You've been watching Shudder's 101 Scariest Movie Moments, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm caught up, so waiting for this week's episode. Yes, as in, as am I. We're down to the top 23, I think. Yes, I think there's two more weeks, including this week. Yeah. Some of them, I'm surprised how early some of them come. Like, some of them, I'm like, oh, I would have ranked that lower. Like, lower in, like, lower closer to one. Like, yeah, yeah, higher, yeah. Meaning higher. Yeah, there um, were some where I was like, oh, that w- I thought was something I'd like put in the 20s or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I do I do think it is a solid ranking though thus far. And I love I love the, the versatility in what they're pulling. Yeah. Like when they pulled um Twin Peaks part eight yeah. as one of the as one of the scares, I was like, oh okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and yeah, the two TV shows in there, Twin Peaks and Haunting of Hill House so far. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, that um, masterful jump scare. Yeah, so we'll, I'm curious to see if another one will slide in there. Um, I have my guess as to what they've chosen for number one, but I don't know. It's It's been a good list, and and the, the Talking Head commentary has been really solid. They got some big... They do and- I do enjoy the talking head commentary. I also liked, I started watching Queer for Fear and Alaska Alaska Thunderfuck just popping um, in there. I haven't started Queer for Fear yet. Is it good? It's good. I enjoy it. And I actually, they mention Dracula in the first episode. So it was like good timing that I watched it yesterday. But yeah, Alaska Thunderfuck is a talking hey, head. Nice. Um, but um, so is Carmen Maria Machado. You know how much I love her. Nice. Very good. 
and several others. Um, Doug Jones. Oh, Doug Jones. Um, he should have been in 101. I know. Well, maybe he will be. I feel like sometimes they throw in random people that yeah, haven't been I, in the rest of them, but suddenly they're here to talk about. Yeah, and like not every talking head is in every episode for the countdown. Yeah. I like this last week's like really I wonder hit. if they were like, all right, which one of these have you watched? Yeah. And then they're like, tell which us. Are, are, are probably like, which ones do you feel really passionate about? And we'll right. let you talk about those ones. Oh, that reminds me. I did watch. Did you watch the new Hellraiser? I started it. I did not finish it. Okay. Um, but I liked what I saw. Yeah, I watched it. Um, I don't know what it is with people and just having, and it's funny because it's not dark lighting in the sense of Game of Thrones where you can't see anything. It's just me asking why these people have no lighting in their apartment. Uh, just like diegetic versus non-diegetic lighting. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> why do these people have such horrible lighting? Um, I enjoyed it. I mean, I don't know how people, I know people are really attached to Hellraiser. I never really had an attachment to it. So I think that gave me space to sort of like, enjoy their exploration yeah. um i thought that um the new cenobites were all very good and then obviously jamie clayton was like incredible as pinhead i felt very very creepy in a way that i think i you know don't always find the original hit pinhead creepy anymore just because it's the been over so over yeah but like this was very creepy yeah um, yeah, I enjoyed what I saw. I, I only saw was able to see like 20 minutes of it. Um, but I do want to finish it. Um, like you, I was never particularly like attached to the original Hellraiser series. Um, I mean, I, I like the original um, and the second one, even the third one. Um, but I'm I'm kind of, what I liked from what I saw was that they were like sticking with a lot of classic Hellraiser stuff while sort of like changing the vibe of it. Yeah, the puzzle box is very fun. The way that they designed the puzzle box, like the prop itself is yeah. very cool. Um, obviously the kills are gonna be different just you know, for the sake of having stuff switched around. I did really enjoy that they took the sort of like poorly aged and just never should have been in there like orientalism out of the original um they changed the setting of where the puzzle box comes from to kind of take that out they don't change it too far because it's just eastern europe so i feel like that's its own bag of problematic but um you know i i i enjoyed it i mean I know people felt very protective of it when it was coming out and stuff, but um, as somebody who's never been a huge fan of Hellraiser, I thought it was fun. I had like such a moment where I was just like, "Is that Aaliyah Shawkat?" And then I, was I... Like, <laughs> and then I had to look it up, and I was like, "It's not." But she was definitely that. playing it as if she was Dory in um. Yeah. She definitely, I got the same vibe. I was like, it's like if Dory were in Hellraiser. Yeah. I like, was, even it, the way she was playing the character. And I'm, like, I'm, like, pretty good with performers and stuff, whatever, but I genuinely had a moment where I was like, is that Aaliyah? <laughs> no, it was uh, Odessa Azian. Yeah. Who is somebody I've never heard of in my life until now. No. Um, She did great. It was just, I also had the same thing, and, like, 
partially because yes like visually they looked alike but also like just the aloof way she was playing that character i was like because i'm in the fourth season of search party right now and i was just getting getting vibes oh yeah definite vibes but yeah um, gotta finish hellraiser um i did see smile i did not see smile even though i did get to interview the writer and director if anyone saw my my interview with him um Um, parker finn parker finn yes um pretty good yeah no i was hearing people said it was actually because i know i mean i was seeing basically when the trailer came out i felt like the trailer probably wasn't doing justice to what it was because they were marketing it very similar to like mid 2000s horror movies i felt like but um and it's not quite that yeah and i've heard um pretty much nothing but good things about it yeah it's pretty good it was pretty creepy um yeah smile was good i um oh i finally saw x and then subsequently i saw pearl i was gonna say i need to i don't i have to see both of them but i'm just like i don't understand like x and pearl and them being like connected somehow yep six months apart like i yeah and a third one's coming that's incredible maxine Um, maybe i'll do that at some point yeah both a wild ride both very good um actually like pearl a little bit more um interesting yeah but i'm I, i've always been like a ty west fan um i'm glad to see him having fun with these movies they're they're both good um what else what else oh i watched hellbender oh what'd you think a favorite of yours i liked it a lot yeah it's pretty fun it was fun um great visuals yes really sort of like stunning just to like watch Um, yes yeah that was one of the first things i watched this year i think it came out like january yeah that was really enjoyable um i watched the new argento movie dark glasses that was the mystery movie on shutter um the other night oh yeah that's fun yeah it was was the debut screening in north america um and now i think it's just on shutter for anyone who wants to watch it it was cool pretty much classic argento Mm -hmm. um i also saw the invitation i've been meaning to watch that that's the one with what's her face from game of thrones right yes that's Net definitely a vampire yeah. movie. Yep, it's essentially what we're going to talk about. <laughs> Fantastic. I heard somebody say they were like on Twitter they were like don't listen to anybody who hates the invitation. I will be buying it on Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It's it's perfectly fine. <laughs> uh it's like the kind of thing that like you need to go in and be willing to have fun you do yeah yeah it's it's fine it's totally fine it is mm-hmm. it is a dracula adaptation yeah um and then just real quickly i finished reading the book hide 
by Kirsten. Oh, you last time I checked in with you, you weren't super big on that. Yeah, and I hold that opinion having finished it. That's um, a bummer. Yeah, kind of a bummer. Um, and then television-wise, I watched the new season of Inside Number Nine, which is a British um, horror mystery show that I've talked about on past episodes that I highly recommend. Um, some good creepy episodes in there. And then I've watched the f- first episode of um, The Midnight Club. Oh, I the reason I have not watched that yet is because I do not fucking feel like logging into my Netflix on my new Roku because <laughs> I don't remember my password. And it's going to take you like a hot minute. Yeah. I go to my sister because she uses my Netflix, but her kids like routinely change the password because they forget and it's like a whole old thing old debacle um but i actually got into a conversation with the teller at the usps of all places because she was talking about watching midnight club with the guy in front of me so when i got up there i was like oh like i haven't watched it yet but i love all his other stuff and she was like yeah she's like we're on episode nine and she's like you know i watch it with my kids my one's 10 year old 10 years old but like i want her to watch these things at home and ask me questions you know instead of like you know, experiencing out in the world. I was like, yeah, for sure. And she was like, yeah, I loved Hill House. I, I didn't love Midnight Mass as much, but I loved the first two. And like, we were going back and forth as I was like, yes, can I have certified mail, please? Yes, can I? Thanks so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I'm excited to watch it eventually. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, I've only watched one episode so far because it's, it's been a crazy month and I've been running around and also trying to watch a lot of horror movies. But, um, I'm into it. You know, it's clearly sort of like Flanagan while being a bit more goosebumpy. Um, yeah, while being a bit more goosebumpy, but um still like what's going on. The first episode actually set or broke the Guinness World Record for most jump scares in an episode of television. <laughs> I feel like that was a thing where he was like, What's the record? Okay. I think so. <laughs> It was like 21, apparently. Holy shit. I will say, recent good jump scare I saw, because normally they, you know, they don't really do much for me, um, is in dash cam. Oh, I I watched that too. The jump scare where the um, airbag goes off. That was a good jump scare. That was a good jump scare. Um, Speaking of books, I finished Echo. Nice. What'd you think? Yeah. It was really good. It's very, it's folk horror, but in a way that I, you know, in a world where everyone's doing folk horror right now as like weird pagan cults and that sort of thing, this is like folk horror, like like nature-based folk horror, because basically the premise is this guy is a mountaineer. He's like an avid mountaineer, which apparently um Thomas Old Kuvet is as well. Um, and he and his climbing partner had an accident. His climbing partner is killed. He falls into a crevasse and this guy gets like his face, like gets just really fucked up from the fall or whatever. And his boyfriend is like, you know, it's told it's their alternating point of points of view. So his boyfriend, um, you know, is, like, having some troubles dealing with the fact that, oh, like, okay, like, he's going to need help the rest of his life. He's severely disfigured. They have to do skin grafting, but, like, something's clearly wrong because, like, at the hospital, like, there's, like, a sudden, like, mass, like, death that happens while he's at the hospital. His doctor ends up committing suicide. 
um, one day the boyfriend, while he has him home and he's like trying to nurse him, like takes a peek under the bandages on his face. Cause he's like, I just, you know, I want to see like what it looks like. And he has this trippy experience where basically he feels like he's on, on the mountain basically where he was and he's falling, like just perpetually falling off the mountain. And basically it deals with like, if a mountain was had a had an evil soul and could possess you and um it's very creepy that sounds like a pretty creepy premise yeah no it was a lot of fun especially as somebody who is i'm not i'm no mountaineer but you know i do rock climbing and i do hiking and that sort of thing so he's dropping like yeah we took our black diamond uh carry bags up that and i was like ah yeah i know that (laughs) i know one of those um and that sort of thing but it was very fun Really quite enjoyed it, as you all know. I'm very big on Hex, um, yeah. his his earlier novel. Um, and then I just finished Rosemary's Baby. Nice. Which was very good. It was basically, the movie's like, basically the, the That's same what I was going to ask. I've never read the book. Um, yeah. Is it sort of like, like, I've also never read The Exorcist, but I've heard a number of times that like, it's beat for, the movie is beat for beat. I would say Rosemary's Baby is pretty close. I'd have to rewatch Rosemary's Baby just to like confirm that because I haven't seen it in a while. But it basically like even down to like the haircut when she gets the haircut, and everyone's like, "Your hair looks like shit. Why did you do that?" <laughs> like it's very, it is very beat for beat, and I think it's able to do that because it is kind of a shorter book. Um, it's a very quick read. But um. No, it was very good. Like even the dream sequences, like everything that happens in the dream sequences when they like sort of, you know, have her on the table and are doing their like rituals, like basically everything in there also happens on screen. Thanks. Um, but it was very good. And it was nice it was a nice October read, I felt. It was like sort of quintessential. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta have a good quintessential October. I've been reading this month, I've been reading an anthology, October Dreams. Oh, I think I have it on my Goodreads list. Yeah, it's a it's a nice mix. It's like short stories um, by like a you know a bunch of big um, horror names mixed with like um, short essays from those mm-hmm. names as well, where they talk about their favorite memories of Halloween. Um, <laughs> so it's cool. So you get to read some creepy short stories, and then it gets broken up with like some essays or some like um, more. I don't know, academic takes on the holiday. It's cool. That's awesome. Favorite memory, not favorite memory, constant memory is being forced to put a jacket on over my awesome costume. Oh, yeah. Screw that. Yeah. Now I'm like, please let it be chilly on Halloween. (laughs) Chillier the better. Um, Yeah, so I think that's everything. Oh, no, there's one big thing we have to talk about. There's one more big thing we need to talk about. So, lay it on about. me, because you you had a very visceral reaction. Um, I, I very- sort of sat with it for a while, and I think I've formed my sort of thoughts on it, but I want to hear your deal. We are, of course, talking about Halloween Ends. We're, of course, talking about Halloween Ends. The conclusion to the David Gordon Green... Halloween trilogy, the H40 trilogy, Hallow Green. I don't know if we've set it on a name for this timeline yet, but mm-hmm. it's, it's over. The movie came out this past weekend. We've both seen it. Um, I did not particularly care for it. 
I like the overall idea that the movie mm -hmm. was going for. And I think that that is worth exploring. Mm -hmm. Sort of like this premise that evil doesn't and really die. You can't. Anyone could be Michael Myers. Yeah, it just changes form. Or this idea that like vulnerable people are like, like there are people who are particularly vulnerable and susceptible to this kind of like evil and incitement to violence. Like I think there was kind of like a, a message in there about that. I like that. I don't know that it was executed the best. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Corey Cunningham character just randomly stumbling upon Michael Myers in the sewer and then being like, okay, me too. Um, mm -hmm. That didn't work for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think for what they, what I think the movie was trying to say and then having that character, I think it would have worked better if it was someone intentionally looking for Michael. Mm -hmm. Like almost like this person, like I identify with Michael because I'm blah, blah, blah. And I'm, or I'm this blah, someone who has taken an obsession too far and then mm -hmm. sort of gets, yeah, it gets like turned in a way or, or goes way too far down the rabbit hole. Um, and then, uh, and then other couple minor things. I, you you bring back the Lindsay Wallace character, and you don't do anything with her. Mm -hmm. um, they've got um, the Will Patton sheriff character floating around, and don't follow through with his arc from Halloween Kills, which was like right. all the guilt he felt over not being able to shoot Michael that first night. And he doesn't really get a moment of redemption at all. And it's just like, I'm going to bring some vegetables or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or, there were just a lot of little moments that didn't add up for, for me and felt. Um, it felt a little disrespectful. Like this wasn't mm -hmm. how they handled a lot of where this story had been going. Thanks to. 2018 and kills and the setup for this movie which i liked and i liked mm -hmm. the prologue it just none of it landed for me basically yeah i think sitting on it because like you know afterwards i was like okay the internet is all over the place with how they felt about it um yeah. i think for me i was I really, you know, I liked the idea of what they were doing. Like, I caught on to what they were doing pretty fast. I was like, okay, like, you know, the idea here is, you know, anyone could be Michael Myers for any number of reasons. This kid becomes a scapegoat um, because, you know, there is no tangible person to blame. You know, it's hmm. been, what, like seven years, four years? I forget what the time jump is. But it's been several years since Halloween Kills. And Michael has been nowhere to be seen, evidently living in the sewers. And, um, spoiler, I guess. But, um, <clears throat> you know, and this kid, like, sort of becomes, like, it's, it's mentioned that he becomes sort of a scapegoat for people because they know that he did something, you know, yeah, like, fucked up. But, you know, it's completely, from what we see, completely incidental what happens. It's very unfortunate. But, um, you know, they sort of make him their monster in in his stead and there's something to be said there for like you know us you know people in sort of cultural contexts needing a physical 
boogeyman or a physical villain or whatever you want to call it. Um, right. And that I enjoyed. Um, I I thought they did well in terms of his escalating behavior, like independent of Michael, like just the way like, okay, he stands up for himself. Okay. He, you know, like really gets in this bully's head. Okay. Now he attacks a homeless man. Okay. Now he gets revenge on somebody who pissed him off. Okay. Now he kills his mom. You know, like I felt that the escalation of his behavior was actually very well done. And, you know, to the point where it almost felt like you don't even need, like, this is its own thing without Michael. Mm. Um, like, you you almost don't even need him, like, um, you know, it's its own story, which I think is also sort of a detriment here, because you're here, it's a Halloween movie. Right. So, you know, you're here for Michael Myers, and it seemed like they weren't sure how much agency Michael had in this situation, or how involved to make him in what was going on with Corey. And then at the end, they sort of abandoned it all together. Like, I, you know, was very shocked. Um, I mean, spoilers, but if you're listening this far, I imagine you've already seen it. And if you, you know, haven't, just press that 15 second jump button or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Corey, when he's like, okay, if I can't have Allison, nobody can and stabs himself in the neck. Like, I thought that was a very, I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. That was crazy. But what a, you know, okay, that's a turn that makes sense just based on his escalating behavior and that sort of thing. But then, like, everyone forgets about him. And then she fights Michael, and then they throw him in the machine grinder. I hated that sequence. I'm sorry. And that's it. People stand up for it, and no, it doesn't work. I had no opinions on it besides it was very silly to sort of have the procession down the street. Um. But, you know, there was no, like you said, like you get to the end and it's her and Will Patton talking about vegetables or something like that. And it's like, okay, like, let's have a little bit of a sort of, you know, closure on this kid and what the hell happened to him and how like, okay, like, yeah, you've killed the the body of the person who was Michael Myers. But clearly the whole point of this is that, you know, these things come back, you know, these that that, that anyone can be this person that anyone if pushed to a certain point is capable of being sort of like, you know, the embodiment of evil as this movie, um, you know, Good. points out. So I just felt like it wasn't like it felt like they had an outline and then they filmed off that outline as opposed to like really fleshing out the idea. Yeah. Um, it Yeah, it just felt like there was, I don't know, like a, kind of like a rush job or kind of like mm-hmm. they didn't give themselves enough time to explore these ideas. And I, think I also think it would have been nice if they had introduced this character even last movie, you know? As yeah, as like someone who is like maybe tangentially affected by Michael's violence. And then in this film, we see what that does to him. Yeah. I was tickled by Laurie writing a memoir. <laughs> I um uh, I've seen some really funny memes about that. Like um props to Laurie Strode for writing a novel that is entirely made of last paragraphs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we always got in on her like doing her concluding sentences. Yeah. Or like um there were like some good sex in the city ones where it'd be like, and then I thought, would I end Halloween or would Halloween end me? Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Um but yeah, I mean ultimately it's one of those things where, you know, it is what it is, but you always have the original. You know. You always have the original and we all know that this is not gonna be the final Halloween 
movie will it be the final halloween movie to involve jamie lee curtis yeah and that's kind of you know interesting to take a moment and say goodbye although she said she said that before so <laughs> she is but getting older but we'll see he is i do think though with the halloween franchise you you definitely have to move away from the laurie strode character we've we've done what we can do there mm-hmm um, I also am not necessarily opposed to them moving away from the Michael Myers character and going anthology style like they tried to do with Season of the Witch. Um, but just do it. I don't want to say do it better because I know there are people who will vehemently like defend Season of the Witch <laughs> until death, but um, but do it better. <laughs> yeah. Gonna say. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they'll retool it and in a couple years we'll see what's next. Um, in terms of this concluding chapter, I'm kind of disappointed, but you know, I watched the original last night, so <laughs> I'm happy. Cleanse your, cleanse your yeah. little brain. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody pointed out because you know, for what it's worth, he's actually in this movie for a minute longer than he is in the original. He is, which is and funny. That- that to me was not necessarily a, a major complaint. Like, um, oh, he wasn't even there. Um, he's not in a lot of the Halloween movies for all that long. Because... No, it's just sort of his presence is always there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Woo, well, I think we That's a wrap got... on Chesterbrook or whatever. That's a wrap on Chesterbrook, kids. That was two months worth of um, horror headlines. Unless. Well, like we haven't missed anything, right? I know it's like so. time and a lot has come out, but I think we my brain is my brain is. I'm sure the the Bob's Burger Halloween episode will be out in the next two weeks. But... That'll be out in the next two weeks. Yeah, Family Guy's also doing a Halloween episode this year. Since you have such a not a hatred for the episode, but a hatred for the B plot in that episode, hatred for the B plot most definitely. Fucking <laughs> can't stand Quagmire in that episode yeah um so hopefully this one their second halloween it's crazy they've only had one halloween episode yeah because they have a halloween um opening in one like last year not a halloween episode it's like the first two minutes is halloween and then they like cut away and then like i'll sometimes watch around this time of year like the um petergeist episode where they do poltergeist Yes, and then Polterga- the Poltergasm. Um, yeah, on American, American Dad. Dad. Yeah, American and Dad then... only has one official Halloween episode, I guess. Mm-hmm. The Best Little Horror House. On... Yes. I thought the one, the Bob's Burgers one from last year was pretty good, where Gail and Linda have to that go back cute. to the school. <laughs> that was cute. But, um, the whole of those are solid. Yeah. The one where they go to the like fake haunted house is legitimately scary that for a while. Good. That one's pretty good. It's legitimately creepy. And the one where Tina's haunted by the pig? Yes. That can get kind of creepy. <laughs> they have some good stuff. Anyway. Anyway. It's time to get into our main discussion. Yes. Extended prologue. Very much so. Kind of like and... what we're talking about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that is discuss the... Uh, 1897, written by Bram Stoker, published by Archibald Constable and Co., Dracula. 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 
Um, what is your first, do you have a first Dracula memory? I feel like that's a tough one because, you know. This is tough. Um, Dracula was big for me as a kid. Mm -hmm. Big. Um, I went as Dracula for Halloween one year. Vividly remember that costume and year and trick-or-treating and just being absolutely fucking thrilled. Um, I remember I had this book. It was one of those um, DK classics mm -hmm. books, you know, with like all the pictures and stuff and the text. And it was for yeah. Dracula. So it kind of like walked you through the story. And in that DK style would like break down different like historical a picture of the armor and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. And this is what... the the castle may have been based on and this is what a blah looked like and here's a, what a carriage was and stuff or whatever and I used to obsess over that book I still have it in um in my bedroom at my parents house um and so that was always like that was definitely just something that was there from a very young age I can remember like playing Dracula and like making my sister like play with me and be the victim and stuff and I'm <laughs> back and all that in here yeah 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 yeah. um I think in terms of being exposed to the character on screen it would have been watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein okay that's I again at some young point in my childhood at a sleepover with my cousins that was like always our go-to sleepover movie um so yeah and that was obviously Bela Lugosi oh, the second and last time he ever portrayed Dracula on screen a lot of people think he did it a bunch of times he did not only twice so yeah again I don't know first first but it, it was definitely Dracula was always around baby baby <laughs> how about you um I have this very vivid vivid memory of catching on tv i don't know which dracula movie it was it may have been the bella lugosi version it may have been the christopher lee version just because it was truly at the time i don't even know like i knew that i was watching a vampire thing i think but that's it but it was the scene where he first shows up at the the castle and um he like cuts himself and dracula was like <gasps> You know, and that sort of thing. And I remember being like very like entranced by the entire sequence and like also knowing that it was creepy and waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah. And then I think my mom turned it off. Oh, she but, um, yeah, but I wasn't, I mean, it was never a huge deal for me. I went obviously as a vampire for Halloween once because we all did. And it was, of course, you're dressed as the Bella Lugosi version of Dracula because that's sort of the quintessential um, vampire look. But I don't think I really got into sort of Dracula and and that sort of thing until college, um, you know, and then it became just sort of an interest in like the concept of a vampire and folklore and how it's changed across like centuries and how, you know, a vampire almost feels like a barometer for where we are like morally as a society, depending on like how the popular presentation of it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
I also, even in doing research for this, I was like, oh, do I want to watch all these old Dracula movies? Because I feel like those are like the thing, like, you know, old Dracula movies are like the old spooky movies. Yeah. They're like, and there's so many of them. Yeah. Uh, and there's a reason there's so many of them. Um, and yeah, I, 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 well, I, um, so I've been rereading, I was rereading the book for this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, I was like, am I, is this actually the first time I'm reading it cover to cover? Right. Cause you've always, you read snippets of it, which makes yes. it, it's very easy to do because it's an epistolary novel. Yeah. And I think that, that might be the case. Um, and it's long, it's so long. Um, but then I was also like, I was so in the mood to go back. So I actually, I did watch the Christopher Lee, the, the 1958 version, mm-hmm. uh, the other week. Um, and that was funny because I think it was the first time, probably because I was reading the book this month as well, where I was like, oh, this is very different from the novel. Um, mm-hmm. They change names and characters and they condense a lot. And mm-hmm. Jonathan dies in the beginning and he's a vampire hunter. And I was like, what is happening? Yeah. Um, but that's, it's, it's funny because that's not what sticks with you. What sticks with you is the count you know Mm -hmm. sort of like lee's performance and that like iconic imagery um even the 31 version changes some stuff but no one really sticks on that it's more just like sticking with bella lugosi's performance and the iconic presentation of the character that he gave us yeah so i'm gonna dive into some history Feel free to jump in as you would like, um, but I've prepared some notes for this evening. Do it. So, Abraham Bram Stoker, he's colloquially known, which I didn't even realize. I was like, oh, he made the, like, vampire hunting hero named Abraham as well. Like, something to unpack there. Um, (laughs) But Bram Stoker was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1847 to... Abraham Stoker and Charlotte Blake. He was the third of seven children. And he was evidently bedridden with an unknown disease until he was seven. Yeah. After right. which he he made a miraculous recovery and actually turned into like quite an athlete mm-hmm. for for a while. He attended Trinity College, where he was a prominent athlete, a member of the Historical Society, and a member of the Philosophy Society. He got a BA there. It said that he pursued an MA, but I don't know that he achieved that. Um, He married Florence Balcom in 1878, and they had one child. Something I wonder is, I don't know if he has any descendants, because his most prominent, like, you know, obviously recently come to prominence is Dacker Stoker, who is his great grand nephew, I believe. I'm oh, not okay. sure that he has any descendants, like uh-huh. actual descendants. I couldn't find anything on that. So if you're a descendant of Bram Stoker, feel free to sound off. <laughs> yeah. So they um they only had one child, right? Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if it was a boy or a girl. So it's entirely possible that if there are descendants, they don't have one. Trying to look real quick. But yes, Dacker Stoker. Uh, oh, Irving. His name was, they had a son. 
Okay, Irving. Irving Stoker. Um, yes, Dacker Stoker, who people will know as the author of Dracul um, mm. a couple years ago, is the great-grand-nephew, I believe, of Bram Stoker. Okay. Um, yeah, so... Dracula? Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. No, 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 no. No, 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 you go. <laughs> you go, you go. No, 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 we have fun, we have fun. Yeah. Um, and he was... Um, and he was close friends with a lot of like literati of the day. Yes, he um, had a lot of letters with Walt Whitman. Um, yeah. Which, the pod. yeah, which um, you know, I won't go into detail on those, but they do come up. They will come up in a little bit in regards to some other things about Bram Stoker's personal life. Um, he was friends with Oscar Wilde. Again, something important to keep as a nugget in your brain for certain things. Um, but yeah, he he worked when he was writing um, Dracula. He was actually working as a sort of he was a greeter and he was an an actor's assistant at the Lyceum Theater in London, where he was also. I don't know if they were friends, but he was acquainted with and was the assistant for Henry Irving. Yes, they were, well, according to the introduction of the Barnes and Noble classics, mm -hmm. um, they were, they were too close friends. Okay. I'm friend. guessing he named his son after him. Though. He named his son after him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, and he, uh, um, Irving died, not Irving Stoker, the original Irving, died in 1905, which was not all that long after Dracula was published. Gotcha. Um, um, yes, yeah, so for those of you who don't know, um, the basic broad strokes of Dracula, it's an epistolary novel. It's told in everyone's sort of letters to each other and diary entries and that sort of thing. It's basically like the original found footage story, this and Frankenstein, because Frankenstein's told the same way. They were into this for some reason in the 19th century. Big deal. Because um, um, Michael and Hyde is written the same way. Uh, yeah, as well. I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm sure there are people who have done like academic, scholarly studies on this and can speak to it intelligently. But all I can say is that people in the 19th century were writing in this style a lot, <laughs> Which, like, especially Gothic reading, writing. And like reading Dracula and like reading all of these like letters and journal entries and stuff, or whatever, where they like recount word for word like all of these like, and then i said and then he yeah. said and then it's like like paragraphs of speech and so i was like no one no <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and i get it like i understand historically it is my one gripe sometimes with stories that tell themselves that way like i don't know if you ever read um things have gotten worse since last we spoke no. But one thing that sort of took me out of it at times is that it's written in the form of email communication and the emails are way too eloquent and like poetry and like yeah. prosy and just very flowery to be like believable as a way people would talk to each other or recount their day to somebody. That would take me out of it as well. Yeah. So anyway, just something of note, but broad strokes is, um, Jonathan Harker, a mm -hmm. British solicitor, which I think is akin to like a salesperson of some sort or an account manager, is basically helping to sell like a property 
in London, or is it in London or Whitby? It's in London. It's in London, but Dracula yeah. comes to Whitby later. Dracula comes to Whitby, and then, yeah. but no, and then, and then, yeah. Yeah, so he travels to what is at this point in history known as Transylvania, present-day Romania, to basically close the deal with their client, who's this, um, like, Transylvanian nobleman named Count Dracula. Um, and while he's there, some crazy shit goes down. Um, he sort of, like, isn't sure if he dreamed it or if it's real, but it turns out that Count Dracula is a vampire. Mm -hmm. And he follows Harker back to England, um, where even more shit goes down. Um, Harker's um, fiance, her friend becomes afflicted, Lucy, um, rather famous um, character, uh, becomes afflicted, gets basically bitten, turned into sort of like a vampiric thrall. He wants to um, do the same thing to Mina, who is Jonathan's betrothed and then wife i believe right yeah um and in order to save her jonathan um enlists the help of abraham van helsing who is a vampire hunter and the group sort of leads a hunt and figures out how to defeat dracula and eventually um with the help of some of his ancestral dirt and beheadings and other things they defeat him um and I believe it's in his native Transylvania that they end up doing this. And yeah. then um, lay the count to rest. Yes. And he's killed and all is well. And yeah. Huzzah. Huzzah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so early reviews when it came out, starting with those just real quick, is um, it was seen pretty positively with some um, like critiques for uh, it being a little too scary. People found it a little too scary at times. They thought the front half of the novel was stronger than the back half, and they found it unintentionally comedic at times. Interesting. Yeah, like one thing they pointed out was um, Dracula's aversion to garlic as being more comedic than really anything else. Huh. Yeah. But, um, I definitely agree with the critique of it being more interesting in the front half. Yeah. Yeah. I think the most interesting aspects of it, you know, are basically the parts that take place in Transylvania and then sort of everything that happens with Lucy. And then after that, it kind of. Yeah. Man, for it's me. a slog. I'm like, I'm not going to lie. Having just read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the whole thing, like, it's pretty boring. And there's yeah. a lot of times where I was just like, oh my God, just like you're like, there's so much just like standing around and like relaying information to each other, but rather right. than being like, okay. And then we filled everybody in it like actually like, okay, now I'm going to explain it to you. And then I'm going to explain it in my diary. And then I'm going to explain how I explained it to you in my diary. And right. there's so much talking in this book. Um, it was it was rough yeah but not the first half is interesting and exciting yeah. And, and yeah yeah and that's like the quintessential vampire movie that we think of is that first half of the novel where jonathan goes to the castle he's going up the mountain he hears the wolves and 
and all that other stuff. But um, yeah, so in the 19th century, vampires kind of moved from being this sort of like grotesque, like walking corpse, essentially, is what they were for the longest time in folklore. Like they weren't these like hot, like blood sucking people. They were literally just like a walking corpse that was like yeah. disturbed and and that sort of thing. Um, Polidori's the vampire kind of like was the first one to really show the sort of like hot, like seductive vampire. Um, and then you have Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, which is hugely influential on Bram Stoker um, in writing Dracula. Um, in early drafts, Stoker actually placed the story in Austria, not Transylvania, which is where Carmilla takes place. Um, and a lot of the sort of broad character ideas, like there's a Van Helsing character in Carmilla, um, the whole bit about coffins and ancestral soil and that sort of thing. Carmilla can turn into a bat, Dracula turns into a dog. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of that going on. Um, but he was supposedly inspired by Elizabeth Bathory, who was a, you know, I think at this point, pretty famous Hungarian noblewoman who, and serial killer, who um, literally took baths in, like, the blood of young women because she thought it would make her younger. She's not all that crazy because that's, like, there's a thing that rich people do with, like, where they literally get, like, like young blood and injected into their their faces and stuff. Right. It yeah. is a thing. <laughs> no, totally. And and like with her, there's a lot. Um, if anyone out there also listens to or doesn't listen to, I recommend. There's a wonderful podcast called Noble Blood. Yes, is uh, that by Dana Schwartz? Dana Schwartz. Yeah, you yeah. you listen. You I listen listened to a couple episodes. Yeah, yeah, I quite enjoy that. They they you know she takes a lot of like um crazy or like wild or sometimes creepy like accounts of um people in history that had noble blood or royalty or whatever and she like kind of she's like let's break this down let's see what was really going on and her episode on elizabeth bathory is really fascinating um because the legend is so much bigger than the person at this point um and there's a lot that like we just kind of accept about her but if you dig into like actual like firsthand sources we have about her it's not a ton mm -hmm. um and so stories about her may have been like exaggerated by her enemies she was a very powerful countess at the time um she was, a, she was a threat to the austro-hungarian empire and the habsburgs um and so yeah she's really interesting so i i definitely recommend like reading more about her she's right not like and not like erasing the fact that she was like definitely probably crazy but, um, <laughs> she may have it may have been uh stretched a bit the by extent the, to which she was crazy may have been exaggerated yeah yeah but the, definitely some bad stuff happened in her castle <laughs> at, at the very least the legend of her seems to have potentially been a um inspiration for the character of dracula the well, other big inspiration and to what extent this was an inspiration is like still hotly debated. Um, yeah. Whether it's just the name or if, um, uh, you know, Stoker did actual research or what, people aren't really sure and have no idea. But basically, the other big inspiration is obviously the Wal Wallachian prince Vlad Dracula, 
um, more commonly known as Vlad III or Vlad the Impaler, um, who's obviously provided his name for the character, but also this sort of patina of like violence and just like, you know, creepy, like cruelty that sort of comes with it. Um, right. But that being said, the Vlad Dracula's reputation, as we understand it today, would not be nearly as well known or popular if not for when he wrote it. Dracula, the story. Um, right. Oh, people, I see. Yeah, some people think he just found the name while flipping through like lists of like Romanian nobility or royalty. Um, some people credit like a like say he talked with professors of like. Transylvanian history and like you know knew a bit about Dracula like it's it's unclear how like con like how much content he actually was like inspired by from Dracula's life or he just really liked the name and just happened to yeah because isn't it like because like apparently like in his notes or or whatever there's like no real mentions of Vlad Dracula Yeah. I think the the prevailing theory is that he just found the name by happenstance and it worked. Um, with it. Yeah. But some people have like retroactively like you know applied a more academic approach and I honestly think he just got lucky. <laughs> I mean, but um so one of the big themes in the book um is sexuality. Yes, as we know. Um and all kinds of sexuality (laughs) like it's not just one thing no and i really (laughs) was surprised again reading the whole thing like this book is so horny Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and it's like because like so much around vampires has become horny mm -hmm. like like that's obviously been a thing and it's been a thing for a while and we've kind of accepted mm-hmm. that but I, I i guess in my mind i was i didn't realize this sort of like uber text that it's all come from was just as horny you yeah. know yeah yeah i mean it was in the very repressed victorian era where anything to do with sex no matter who you were having sex with was you know you did not talk about you did not acknowledge in any way various other things um you know one of the theories for um you know why he went about writing it and writing it the way he did is obviously you have Carmilla which is like the sort of like lesbian vampire at the very least female sexuality book and he was writing in response to that and writing a more male focused um book on like sexual freedom essentially because there's a lot of different readings for the scene where basically the entire sequence of Jonathan in the castle, um, you know, at any given point can be read a couple different different ways. So like people have looked at the scene with the three female vampires who are just chilling in the castle who we do not explore. They're just no. three vampire women who also live in the castle. Um, and they sort of like have their way a little bit with Jonathan in like a vampiric sense, right? They bite him and and are doing different things, but it's definitely a stand-in for sexual acts. And people viewed that as, um, you know, Stoker's way of sort of writing wish fulfillment to be in that role, you know, when having 
coitus. One one man with three women sort of. Well, well one man with three women, or if you take the women because they're biting him and sort of penetrating him. Oh, I see. I see. To take that, you know, um, to, to to be in that role, in you know, in a sort of fornicating act of like being the person yeah. who is. You know, for lack of a better term, I hate putting it this way, but for lack of a better term, in this what would be viewed as the submissive role, the submissive partner in a sexual dynamic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the receiving partner, I guess, is a better way to put it. Yeah, and that's and that's interesting because in that sequence, um, Dracula intervenes and yes. gets very angry at the the vampire mm-hmm. um, because he still has use for a heart. He there is even a line he says like you may have him when i'm done with him yes and that line was altered in the english version of the text um that's how it appeared in the american version who knows what it is now but when it was published that's how it appeared in the american version in the english version it appeared as him just saying you can have him tomorrow he doesn't say he's mine he just says you can have him tomorrow they took that bit out um, and a lot of people think that it was very purposeful and that would have rendered it sort of unpublishable in yeah. England um, to to have that line in there where he basically says, I think he says he's like, he's mine, you can have him tomorrow or right. something to that extent. Yeah. And there, you know, there is this sort of implication that like, oh, has Dracula then, I mean, obviously Dracula needs Harker to arrange you know, like the purchase of Carfax Abbey and there's like mm-hmm. a um a platonic reason that he needs Jonathan alive for a little bit longer um but then it's it's definitely like has Dracula fed on him mm-hmm. at night um is he um gaining use from Jonathan that way because like you were saying like in this novel the idea of feeding and biting is connotated very sexually um, because right. outside of the prologue, Dracula only victimizes women that we are aware of, primarily Lucy and then Mina. But right. if he was feeding on Jonathan, what does that mean about Dracula? He's a bi king, <laughs> is what it means. He's a bi king. <laughs> um when you're that old, probably. I know, right? We were talking about that with I don't know if you watched the end of Rings of Power or if you're caught up. I did. Um, yeah. I was right from the jump. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we were talking about that though, where we were like, Sarlon is definitely like, like he'd be down to clown with anyone, right? When you're that old, like. Right, when you're that old. do whatever. When you're a my year. <laughs> yeah, you'll do whatever. When you've been awake since the breaking of the first silence, you will do before whatever. Before the breaking of the first. Before the breaking, excuse me. Yeah, you're uh, you're probably just gonna. <laughs> um. Anyway, it's worth noting at this point. So Stoker um has a sort of complicated um uh public persona when it comes to his sexuality, because on the one hand he publicly went on the record denouncing homosexuality. However, he was very good friends with Walt women who. You know, at this point, most people agree he was either bisexual or homosexual. He was very good friends with Oscar Wilde, famous man imprisoned for homosexuality. And this novel was written a month after Oscar Wilde was put in prison for um, in a very public trial that had all of England talking, you know. Yeah. So, you know, 
who you know it i i found this with um like just people like doing research for other topics and like sort of like historians and archaeologists and that sort of thing trying to like you know suss out sexualities and gender identities and that sort of thing for people and basically the point they made is like with a lot of what goes on in how we look at history you don't know how people thought about themselves right so, you know there's no way to truly know what you know Bram Stoker was feeling how he felt about himself how he viewed himself you know sort of what his truth was and that sort of thing um but this book is very horny and it's very horny in sexually transgressive ways that include you know homosexuality um and that sort of thing yeah because even like outside of how we might read the different vampire acts um and what have you like the dynamic between the um the men that sort mm -hmm. of like rally around lucy and mina and become our heroes um you know van helsing jonathan then you have dr seward and you have quincy morris um the way they talk about each each other and to each other and these expressions of love and there's there's a huge fixation in the in the text like reading it on the idea of manhood and being a man and like lauding each other and saying oh and because mm -hmm. we are men and and Mina is sort of like oh and these brave wonderful strong men who have there's a huge fixation on that idea and their relation to each other um and also the idea of what it means to be a woman and you know Mina's talked about a you know sort of like the ideal because she is a woman with a man's brain but mm -hmm. it still has a female edge to her intellect and right yeah there's a lot going on yeah I mean the the way that women are um portrayed in the novel is like also obviously like all of it is up for a lot of debate um you know there was sort of a feminist movement going on a mini feminist movement but there was a little one going on around this time where basically women were sort of becoming more um seen a little bit as like intellectuals however like you know vaguely but like people have written about like, you know, Lucy represents a sort of sexual freedom that isn't available widely to Victorian women. Mina represents an intellectual freedom, um, you know, and depending on how you read what happens to them, you know, if you see it, you know, is it punishment? Is it, you know, is it, you know, is he sympathize, sympathizing with them, different things and that sort of thing. You know, people have noted that, you know, the, there are four vampires in the novel, three of them are women and, you know, presented as very erotic and violent um, in a way that the male vampire is not. And, oh, sorry. Well, no, you can go ahead. And, and, and even with Lucy, like she, you know, she has these three suitors. Oh, sorry, yeah, because I forgot about Arthur. Sorry. You know, Arthur, mm -hmm. Dr. Seward, Quincy, they're all like seeking her hand after they've known her like a day in classic like Victorian mm -hmm. fashion. Um, 
And they love her because like she's short of the, she's young and she's beautiful and she's like pure and like very virginal and stuff or whatever. But she makes this quip about like, oh, but couldn't a woman have three husbands and stuff or whatever. And then after she becomes a victim of Dracula and dies and then is herself a vampire before she is dispatched, like what's talked about what makes her so horrific when she's undead is that she's more erotic and mm-hmm. more like openly sexual and sort of like voluptuous and it's like viewed as like a corruption of what she used to be mm-hmm. um and it's like this great tragedy that now this is sort of like the way she behaves um right. which is and and even mina like within the text she comments on the feminist movement that was happening at the time which was known as the new woman she mm-hmm. actually like derides them um right and like with and jokes about them like she doesn't view herself as part of that which is interesting because she kind of embodies that like she knows shorthand she knows how to mm-hmm. type um they it's brought up many times how smart she is she plays a really crucial role in the ultimate defeat of dracula so i don't yeah. it's, it's interesting to think about what's going on there because the character looks down on the idea of the new woman but Stoker is writing her as a new woman. Right, so it's like, is that intentional? Is that, you know, something Stoker isn't even aware of, you know? And another, you know, like people have pointed out, like, yeah, she does have a crucial role in sort of Dracula's defeat at the end, but, you know, how does that play out in the grand scheme of like that ultimate climax is a group of men fighting amongst themselves for control of this woman's body, essentially. Um, you know, and what does that mean in that context? So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much emphasis on like, oh, and we must preserve Mina and Mina, you must, you must stay here or you must not know this part of the plan because you are our star and you are the purity and you are what Mm -hmm. we are fighting for. And us men, we can handle this and da, 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 da. There's just, there was so much more of that than I think I ever realized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like whether he intended it or not, uh, this novel is really looking at the ideas of what it meant to be a man and by extension, what it meant to be a woman in this world. Yeah. Um, Another less savory aspect of the novel, um, you know, it being a product of its time um, is, you know, like, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword because you have Dracula is, you know, sort of credited with creating the template for the modern vampire aesthetic, but the basis for the aesthetic in the novel itself was very emblematic of what was called at the time invasion literature, which was Mm. basically these xenophobic stories of foreign powers invading England. And in particular, it was, you know, during the two decades before the novel was written, um, the population of Eastern European Jews increased sixfold in the country as people were fleeing pogroms in like other countries. Um, you know, and Dracula is described incredibly like anti-Semitically, you know, yeah. he's got all these anti-Semitic traits, um, you know, that include things that I won't go into, but just like, you know, he basically is described in both appearance and behavior as being like what people at that time would have recognized as like an Eastern European Jewish person. 
Um, yeah. And then in adaptations, like people seem to, whether they know it or not, like really lean into that with the way that they portray them. Like, um, is it Max Schrenk in Nosferatu? Like has a very hooked nose. He's got very like thick eyebrows. Um, you know, just like very like stereotypical in a way that it's like so commonplace that people don't really like recognize it all that much now. Um, in addition to that, there's like stuff in there, like the sequence with Romani people is, you know, yeah, definitely played a lot into how people view them today, I think. Yeah, because um, essentially everyone outside of um, the English heroes mm -hmm. uh, are either villains. Mm -hmm or um uh, yeah portrayed very stereotypically um and usually um like low intellect being a, a big recurring thing that comes up um stoker does um that thing where um he writes uh mm -hmm. Uh huh. Uh huh. You're uh -huh. doing a motion. <laughs> yeah, and again, no one can see me do the motion. Um, he writes he writes colloquial speech into the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he writes the way he, you know, someone would sound. Um, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of strong feelings about that kind of method and writing, one way or the other. Um, but it is always reserved for um characters um outside of sort of like the main proper mm -hmm. english yeah group yeah so you know and worth noting like just the entire aesthetic of the vampire in the 19th and 20th centuries um i think we've moved a little bit away from it in the 21st century if twilight can be credited with anything it's sort of taking away the anti-semitic portrayals of, of vampires but um you know that was the big um you know just way they were viewed at the time you know on top of that and this is something I learned about when I went to my Nosferatu screening a couple years ago is the role of like disease and like you know at this time you know germ theory had just sort of become a thing there was like I think they had just discovered malaria and that sort of thing. So like disease and the spread of disease is sort of like a prominent theme throughout. And obviously Dracula like represents disease and the spread of disease, but then specifically like, you know, being bit by a vampire and turned into a vampire is like standing in for sexually transmitted diseases. Sure. You know, at this time we would have had like syphilis and I think gonorrhea like going around and that sort of thing. And then going back to the racial thing, it was also like, there's, you know, racial connotations with like cleanliness and right. um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely something that consciously or unconsciously infused his writing because even the Van Helsing character, not to a huge extent, but definitely talks about like, oh the vampiric disease right and, yeah yeah i think he, he calls it like a scourge or a disease and yeah 
Yeah, and something and to then, be eradicated and right, right. And then outside of that, you know, obviously the huge emphasis on blood and mm-hmm. and and Mina when it's clear that she's sort of like infected or whatever with the vampire disease, but not completely turned like you know, the whole sort of like last act of the novel is referring to herself as unclean because Dracula has put some of his blood inside of her. Or, right. You know, um, yeah, and it's like bodily fluid, which, you know, becomes a stand-in for, you know, whatever else during um, sex and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on and like there's a whole scholarship on Dracula that you can peruse from people much smarter than us. This is just sort of the high level of topics that you might encounter um, if diving into Dracula yourself. Um, Is there anything else in terms of like themes or motifs you wanted to point out? Um, I feel like we hit on a lot of the big ones. Maybe, Maybe the one we didn't touch on that I would say is um, how the novel handles mental illness. Interesting, yeah. So the character of Renfield, I I think is what you you would be referring to. Yeah, which is obviously not how we would hope to handle it now. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is interesting because like the Renfield character doesn't really matter in terms of the scope of the plot of mm-hmm. the actual novel of Dracula. Um, he's just sort of like a weird, creepy aside. He's responding to Dracula's presence. Um, he's doing his weird thing, eating his flies, eating his spiders. Um, he talks to, you know, Seward, he talks to Mina at, at one point, and then like he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have written novels like about him and from his point of view like he's definitely oh, yeah. captured the imagination oh yeah there's a new movie coming out next year called Renfield starring Nicolas Cage starring Renfield oh my god <laughs> as Renfield no I'm uh, sorry Nicolas Cage is playing Dracula um I don't but... know which would have been ready <laughs> Renfield Renfield, like, Ren, come over here. I want to talk to you about something. Renfield, I'm going to Here's steal the definition of Transylvania. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're, we're going to do. We're going to have to steal. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, and I mean, that's definitely, again, like, you know, sign of the times, like, you know, what they did with people who had mental illness who was considered to be mentally ill. Um, you know, they were just sort of like treated the same as prisoners, essentially. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, very curious, especially since Ren- how Renfield has sort of, um, you know, become a character that, yeah, like you said, has really gripped um, the public's imagination in, in the way that like is really close to how much Dracula has. Um, mm-hmm. uh even and even in the the um the universal the 1931 with bella lugosi it's renfield that goes to the castle in the prologue he's the Mm -hmm. agent um not jonathan and then dracula sort of like turns him into his like slobbering servant um 
And it was like, oh, well, why was that change made? That's interesting. So I just feel like it was something about Renfield, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting stuff. All right. I'm going to quickly go through a very non-exhaustive list of, you know, just some adaptations <laughs> worth including. Yeah. Um, I believe the, the, the first film adaptation, 1922, is Nosferatu. Yes. by F.W. Murnau, unofficial, not an official adaptation of Dracula because they could not get the rights to it. They decided to make it anyway and change the characters' names and change some of the locations um, because it was a German film and made for German audiences. They sort of switched the action to happening in Germany and gave um, a lot of the characters German names, called it Nosferatu, which I believe um, just means a vampire. Um, and um i've seen it it's it's interesting it's fun um yep. the warner herzog 1979 remake is also considered pretty equally good um but yeah it's an interesting movie because the stoker estate like very quickly sued them after it came out and um a judge ordered all the copies of the film to be destroyed but somebody some hero of history saved one um, and it was from that one copy that all the rest today that we have exist. Which is kind of really wild. <laughs> it is. Somebody, somebody was looking out for everybody else. Um, what I love about Nosferatu is um, it's like the only like proper portrayal of um, the character where he's like a straight up monster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's very bizarre looking. He's got like long skeletal fingers. He's got these weird pointy ears. He's got two like very prominent teeth. His two front yeah. teeth. Yeah. And what's even creepier is that like Max Shrek, like we don't really know a lot about him. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like what his deal was. He didn't do a whole else after this. So it was kind of like what uh what's this guy's uh jam here <laughs> yeah yeah very very interesting creepy movie obviously has that famous sequence on the staircase with the shadows um good stuff um in terms of official sanctioned adaptations <laughs> right is um 1931 dracula directed by Tom Browning and starring Bela Lugosi in the title role, taking over from what was supposed to be Lon Chaney, who passed away um, before production started. And this is probably the most lasting, most famous in terms of aesthetic and imagery adaptation of um, the story. And this is basically where all sort of like your like generic vampire aesthetic comes from. Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i think i've so like i said i don't know when i was a kid which one i caught but um obviously you know i'm sure it's a good movie <laughs> and that and well that in itself is telling because like um because the imagery is just sort of just there in our culture mm -hmm. you know and it's not like something you even need to see to know who or what Dracula is, or like the aesthetic of the vampire, because it's so pervasive now. 
right. because of this movie um, with like a few add-ons thanks to the Christopher Lee adaptation. Yes. Yeah, the Christopher Lee adaptation comes out in 1958, directed by Terrence Fisher, and obviously starring Christopher Lee uh, as the title character. Um, and this one kicked off the Hammer Horror um, series of films. Right. Not unlike, I believe, Dracula was the the Universal Monsters, or was it just part of it? Dracula was first by a couple months. Frankenstein was later that same year. Gotcha. So... Both good and exciting stuff. One of my favorites is 1992's Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes, yes, yes. Um, obviously directed by Francis Ford Coppola, which blended the historical Vlad III with the vampire character um, played by Gary Oldman. It's very visually stunning. It's got a great vibe. It is probably most famous for being one of the most poorly handled miscasts <laughs> um, in in film history, in casting Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker, yeah, and even Winona Ryder gets Winona Ryder. As, you know. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that was a miss. But, it was um, a miss, but you but Oldman was great, and Anthony Hopkins is there, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, in, I didn't watch this, but in terms of TV adaptations, the most recent um, that I knew of was 2020's Dracula by Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss. Um, I recommend it. Is it good? Yeah, it was good. I like. I quite liked it. It yes. definitely takes some wild liberties. Gotcha. Um, and it's not a strict adaptation, but it's fun. Nice. Um, that stars Clay Bang as Dracula. Yes. Which is fun. I also... Um, Oh, sorry. No. What, what you I say, this is sort of like when people are like, what's your unpopular like horror movie opinion? Um, I absolutely love the 2004 Stephen Somers film Van Helsing. Interesting. I did. What was that movie where Gerard Butler played Dracula? Oh, yeah. Dracula something. Dracula 4000. Was that it? Let Hold me on. check real quick, folks. Dracula 3000. Dracula 3000. Yeah. With, uh... Was that it? No, with that oh, was I don't, I don't know. Hold on. Van Helsing, Hold on, everybody. Richard Roxburgh plays Dracula in Van Helsing. Um, Dracula 2000. Dracula 2000. Yeah. That one I want to sort of rewatch. Ridiculous. Gerard Butler plays Dracula, but also in a world where Dracula is also Judas. And sort of being oh, a vampire yeah. is his, like, punishment. And then um, Luke Evans played him in Dracula Untold. Nice, yeah. Yes, I did see, I do, I did see that. Which was, I feel like, the test to see if they could do, um, you know, there were those plans to do a dark universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they tried that in Mummy and it just did not. Uh... Which is a huge bummer, I think. Yeah. Um, what are you going to um, do? Yeah. In addition to outright adaptations, uh, the character has appeared in various pieces of media, including The Brady Bunch. 
Yoden's Island, <laughs> the Monsters, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Um, he's also the inspiration for Count Chocula mm-hmm. on the cereal box. Um, and one sort of unofficial um, adaptation slash um, appearance of the character, I would say, is Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, which was yeah. heavily influenced by um, Dracula in the Christopher Lee films, I think, specifically. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. I, I actually... I think we brought that up when we covered Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, lots of... I mean, Dracula's sort of like... It, he's like kind of everywhere, one way or another. Yeah, and, it's a very sort of um, pervasive character. Yeah. And then... Uh, I don't know. Is there is there a uh, an adaptation you think I missed in terms of those are? I feel like the really big ones you hit on. Um, I'm trying to think. Hmm. I'm like double checking real quick as well. Okay, here, this is kind of interesting. Um, The character has been adapted for film, television, video games, and animation over 700 times. With nearly a thousand additional appearances in comic books and on stage. Count Dracula has been deemed, along with characters such as Frankenstein's monster, Mickey Mouse, and Superman, to be part of the hegemonic Anglo-Saxon world cinematic fodder. Across the world, new adaptations are produced as often as every week. Oh my God. Yeah. So, and that's the thing, like you almost, like it's it's kind of impossible to sort of have it a complete list, I feel like, of every adaptation of Dracula. Right. Um, that's pretty wild. That is wild. Um, definitely... And then, oh, sorry. No, what were you gonna say? Just and sort of just like even just the, aside from direct adaptations, just the um, influences of the character and the story and the novel, like right, the indirect adaptations of Dracula alone are going to be just as much as the actual direct adaptations right yeah it's big stuff it's everywhere and it's 125 years old and it's 125 years old and it's still um a huge part of our culture yeah renfield coming out next year nick cage (laughs) as dracula nick cage as dracula here i'm gonna look i'm gonna look up uh the rest of that real quick for all y'all I feel like once you said that, I was like, oh, I did hear about, yes, because I remember seeing the pictures of Nick Cage, the set pictures of him as Dracula, and he looks fucking ridiculous. Yes. So, it's an upcoming horror comedy. Um, It's going to be directed by Chris McKay, um, who did, he directed the Lego Batman movie um, and the Tomorrow War. 
Uh, Nicholas Cage will be starring as Count Dracula. Um, Nicholas Holt will be playing Renfield. Yes. Uh, Aquafina is going to be playing uh, Rebecca Quincy. Ben Schwartz is in the cast. Adrian Martinez. Aquafina. Um, yeah, she's going to be Re Rebecca Quincy. Should be interesting. Oh, you did say that. Um, it looks ben like Schwartz, it's a. Yeah. It looks like it's a contemporary take yes yeah um so takes place in new orleans yeah we'll see how that goes um there's also i do believe a more serious adaptation coming to us next year um yes um the last voyage of the demeter um an upcoming uh supernatural horror film that is an adaptation of the captain's log which is a chapter in the novel detailing um, when Dracula is transported with all of his soil um, across the sea to England. And the ship he's on is the Demeter. And mm -hmm. one by one, the crew, you know, are like dispatched or disappear. Like each night, more crew members disappear until only the captain is left and he ties himself to the mast, you know, and they talk about the ship just sort of like crashes into the harbor um, with one survivor. And so that's probably, that's a really creepy part of the book. Um, and that chapter, I guess, is being adapted into a feature film next year. Um, that'll star Corey Hawkins, um, David Asmachian, and Liam Cunningham. Huh. Um, and Javier Botet will be playing Dracula. Interesting. All right. So look for that. All right, sweet. So there's more on the horizon. Yeah. Cool. Any any last thoughts on Drac Dracula? I mean, you know, I I, I love the guy. <laughs> <It's my buddy. laughs> Yeah, my buddy Drac. Um, always loved him since I was a kid. Uh, I'll always watch a Dracula adaptation. See, see a cool new spin on it. I think I initially like loved him so much because like a cape. I love a cape. Mm -hmm. He's good with a cape too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's cool just to see how it gets reinterpreted and how the idea of the vampire changes and different ways we read the story and make the story relevant 125 and plus mm -hmm. years later. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What are your final Exciting thoughts? stuff. Yeah, no, the same. I mean, it's one of those things where um, I feel like, I mean, at the time it came out, I'm sure it was very, you know, provocative and new. I think at this point for us, you know, the story of Dracula is worth more in its adaptations than it is in the text itself for a lot of people. Um, you know, like you said, it's a little bit dry. It's a little bit um, requires some extrapolation at times, um, but it's definitely like there's something in there and sort of the essence of it that still yeah. sticks with people. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Yeah. So I think we're going to close the book on our yeah. 125th salute to Dracula. Yeah. Um, 
And this will also close out episode 103, our October episode. Uh, when we are next in your ears for our November episode, we're going to give you a rundown of how the horathon went. And then we are going to specifically dive deep and cover one of the 15 movies that we see this weekend. Mm-hmm. Obviously, since we don't know what movies are <laughs> going to be shown, we don't know what movie that's going to be. Yeah. Um, but Miss Mel and I will figure that out between ourselves. And then that will be the topic for our next episode. Mm-hmm. So until then, we want to wish you a very happy and spooky Halloween. Um, be safe. And for now, um, we will say au revoir, adios, and that's what it is.